the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris. Today we'll be discussing September call-ups, a potentially settled bullpen, and a surprise starter up north. And we'll start things off with the most interesting player alive today. No surprises here. Actually, it is a surprise, because we always complain about the same guy being at the top search for list for weeks in a row, and it seems like Mike Trout is the guy right now. Which, I mean, he's arguably the most interesting player alive for the last, like, two seasons. But number three on the list isn't a surprise. And that's Alfonso Soriano, who has two straight two-homer games with 13 RBIs total. Now, I want to know, you know, do you believe in the psychology of a change of scenery? Because, you know, we always hear about guys that are underperforming for bad teams, and, and people always say, oh, maybe he needs a change of scenery. And you think that moving to a contending team from a seller-dweller could truly spark a player to perform better? You know, uh, not really, but um, on the other side, you know, uh, the you know with, like, Alex Rios in particular, um, Ozzie Guillen said, you know, Alex Rios don't run the bases, and... And, uh, you know, there's been questions about how much he's into it. He got benched this year for not running to first. And he's never played for a contender. So there's, you know, there's something there about motivation, I guess. You know, if you've never played for a contender, it could be something that you'd be doing. Soriano, you know, has played for contenders, but, you know, it's been a long time. And it kind of was last in New York, so maybe... He remembers it fondly. Uh, maybe he enjoys the big crowds. Um, and in particular, I think probably the biggest effect is that he enjoys his new stadium. Yeah, I mean, Yankee Stadium is a bit better for lefties than, than right-handers. So I don't think the stadium is that much different than Wrigley Field. But don't you think it's a bit insulting to kind of say that players are only motivated to perform well when they're on winning teams and if they're in a losing environment they just don't care i mean that seems pretty insulting to me that they just can't perform in a losing environment considering these are professional baseball players it's true and and, you know if you add you know the most recently up-to-date stats into his uh into his line he's basically the exact same guy he's always been uh, you know, he's useful for power and not much else these days. I guess he's still stealing a couple bases, but, you know, I, I don't I don't see what the big deal is. You know, it's a, a couple a couple good games doesn't mean that all of a sudden he's going to hit 300. No, I mean, it is good news, though, because there was, I think, some slight talk that maybe he wouldn't play every day against right-handers because he hasn't performed very well and he's been much better against lefties in past years. But the fact that he's already hit seven home runs with the Yankees means that he's probably solidified his time against righties also, and he's going to be pretty much an everyday player. And and that's important because if he got benched against righties, that would like kill his fantasy value. And there's uh, running RBI upside um, to his new team, I think. I mean, even though they their offense has not been that great this year, 
Um, I think, you know, with A-Rod back and with Soriano in the mix, they can uh, be an above-average scoring team, and I'm not sure that the Cubs were much better than that. Yeah, they definitely have that potential now because they got a lot healthier. Obviously, Granderson is back, too. So they're not the the poor offensive team that they were earlier in the season when half of their offense was on the DL. So there is that upside. Uh, I don't think he's going to steal bases at the same pace as he was in Chicago, but, I mean, it's not like he was a 30-steal guy anyway. It's What is he going to go from a projected <clears throat> five more steals the rest of the way to three? I mean, that's not, that's not really going to hurt fantasy owners much. All right. Speaking of the rest of the season, do you think there are any expected September call-ups the fantasy owners should stash now? You know, the one thing that's that's rough about September call-ups, I think, in general, especially when it comes to pitching, is that um, I think they're kind of rare that they come and, and make a big impact. And, and when you think about the pitchers in particular, most of them are struggling with uh, innings and, and in scraping up on their, their innings maximums. Um, you know, the people in the majors, we know that about the people in the major leagues, you know, the Jose Fernandez types. But, you know, it's even more so with, the, with people who spend most of the year in the minor leagues because last year they probably pitched in high A or something and they don't have the same kind of seasons. So they, don't have, they don't pitch as long. And some teams even don't allow their high A pitchers to pitch more than three or four innings. So um, what we have are, you know, a lot of starters that are scraping innings maximums. So, you know, what you might get, and I always find this interesting in September, are your uh, starting pitcher eligible relievers. So, um, I mean, if you're in a league where you can get holes out of a starting pitcher, then, uh, yeah, I think I would stash someone like Kevin Gossman uh, or Michael Waka because they might come up and slot into a starting pitcher slot for you and get you holds later on. But um, do I think that uh, someone's going to come and light the, the league on fire? No, I don't think that. Hey, so Jeremy Bonderman fits into that mold. How about Jeremy Bonderman? Are you excited about his starting pitcher eligible potential in the bullpen? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, there have been worse starting pitchers that have made better relievers or, or made good relievers. So I, I wouldn't call it impossible, but I thought we were talking about young guys. <laughs> so you obviously, you're referring to probably Yahoo leagues that have uh, designations between SP and RP slots, right? Well, my, my league that's like that is on ESPN. Oh, I don't think I've ever played an ESPN league with SP and RP slots. I I didn't know that that was a, a possible setting. I've only played on Yahoo leagues like that, but uh, I guess it's become universal. Yeah, I mean, uh, some people want to kind of try and force some constraints on the way that you play. I think it's mostly a, almost like a head-to-head thing, so that uh, to keep people from you know playing a bunch of relievers or playing a bunch of starters or whatever. Is there any chance that Billy Hamilton gets called up and actually earns positive value in fantasy leagues? And I'm pretty sure I remember last year writing an article, although it's not popping up on Fangraph, so maybe I'm just imagining this, maybe I dreamt this, but I thought I tried to project how many steals Billy Hamilton could record, even as just a pinch runner, and if that would provide any fantasy value at all. And this was last year. Obviously, he was never called up, so we don't even know. Oh, you know what? I went to the wrong Billy Hamilton. I'm looking at his team. I'm like, the Bean Eaters? Who are the Bean Eaters? <laughs> so there, there was a, a Billy Hamilton who played from 1888 to 1901, and clearly some of our other authors picked the wrong Billy Hamilton too because I see 
two recent articles that reference this incorrect Billy Hamilton. Mm-hmm. You gotta watch out for that. That's pretty hilarious. Uh, yeah. So Billy Hamilton, I mean, he's been pretty much a, a disappointment. He kind of reminds me of a. Well, I guess he has more power than Jason Tyner, but I was thinking Jason Tyner of a guy who's a slap hitter, singles hitter, who just isn't a very good hitter, and he's just he's more exciting in fantasy than and and he's just gonna be worthless in real life. But any chance here for value? Um, well, you know, on 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 talent, I would say yes. Uh, I, I still believe because um, the the main thing is that I don't think that Chu is a is a center fielder. I guess. You know, since they've gone this far into the season, they're maybe not going to do anything about it. But, um, you know, for my team, I'd probably move Chu to a corner and make Ludwig a part-time player. He's coming back from a, a power-sapping injury. Uh, he didn't perform particularly well in the minor leagues. Uh, he's an older guy. Uh, you could you could do, exploit some platoon stuff. You could use Billy Hamilton as a defensive replacement, even if you started Sinchu Chu in center. Um, and, and a defensive replacement slash pinch runner, uh, the kind of thing that you could get him the equivalent of three or four starts a week, and then you know he would start to look better than, say, a Julio Borbon or a Tony Campana or any of these part-time guys that you might play, or Jared Dyson. You're kind of better than these part-time players that you would play just for steals, like somewhere in between you know, an actual guy that plays every day and someone that's just bench. I, th- I could see that on talent. The problem is he's not on the 40-man, and I don't think his GM wants to put him on the 40-man roster right now, um, and that would cause them to have to cut someone. And, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't actually see it happening. It's kind of sad for me because I, I really wanted to have him have a shortstop eligibility and come in there and, and steal a bunch of bases from me from uh, the MMI, but it's, it hasn't happened this year. One of the most exciting things about Hamilton's skill set last year is that he walked a lot more than he had previously. And he posted really, really strong walk rates that would suggest that even if he hits about 260 or so in the majors, he could still put up a pretty good on-base percentage, which would keep him at the top of the order. Unfortunately, this year at AAA, that walk rate dove right back down to where he had been before 2012. So I don't know what happened there, if last year was just a fluke, if AAA is proving to be a level that he's just not really ready for. But the current Billy Hamilton walking only 7% of the time is not good enough to be an everyday player in my eyes. He's got to get back to that really patient guy that he was in 2012 for him to really provide value as an everyday player. You agree? Yeah, I do think that there's um, there's definitely a split season kind of thing going on where he had a really terrible beginning of the season and has been better since. Um, it's going to be, it's, you know, we don't really have splits on our minor league pages, but uh, I have I have heard that he's been a lot better recently. Um, I spot a lot more walks, you know, uh, starting in July when I look at his game log. So I think that he had a bad beginning of the year. I know that there are some issues with um, his platoon splits and which side of the plate he's swinging from. Um, but, uh, I do think that, that Billy Hamilton's still in there. I think he can play a really good defensive center field. Um, and I think he can probably be like a, you know, Michael Bornish type player. Well, there's gotta be a position that opens up for him. So clearly it doesn't seem like that's going to happen this year, but next year, obviously all fantasy owners are going to have 
an eye on him given that speed. I mean, there's nobody else with like legit 100 steal potential. And so when you come across a player like that, which is so rare at this point, then you got to pay attention. Yeah, and I mean, if he if he did do something like that, it'd be really fun, and it would be one of the better upsides fantasy wise um, in the in, you know among the top prospects that could come up this year. I mean, there's there there are some talents that are kind of close to the majors, like um, you know Xander Bogarts is obviously very close. Um, you know, you've got guys like uh, Miguel Sano and Francisco Lindor who are in Double A, but they're really young, and I don't think their teams are going to call them up. Um, you got some pitchers that are in AAA, but like I said, those, they're going to run up on innings limits. So, uh, you know, if it's not Xander Bogarts, um, then, you know, it might really be someone like, uh, like Kevin Gossman just being a lights-out reliever uh, for your team. All right, so let's move along to a pitcher who's back. Roy Halladay had surgery in mid-May to remove a bone spur in his right shoulder and repair a torn rotator cuff. Now, this is the type of surgery that 99.9% of the time, you assume, will knock out a pitcher for the rest of the year. And you have to wonder if he's even going to make opening day the following year after rest and rehab. And and yet it, it sounds like he might only need one more rehab start and he can rejoin the Phillies' rotation, which shocks me. So he started today six innings. But no word yet on velocity that I found or, or movement or how he feels or anything. Uh, is he a guy that you could imagine having value for the rest of the way? Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, I had a, a well-traveled piece that uh, looked at 35-year-olds with shoulder injuries. And um, they averaged 51 innings after, uh, after the surgery. In their uh, career? In their career. Wow. So, um, and that included Tim Wakefield, who had like, you know, 300 or 400 innings after, I think even more maybe, but that included Tim Wakefield, who I don't think should count. Um, and if you take him out, then, you know, it looks a lot uglier. So, uh, I really think that, um, I really think that it's not going to really work out for him. I, you know, I, 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 he might come back and throw 87, 86, 87. He has he gets enough ground balls and he plays in a weak enough league and division that it might work for him. But uh, it, you know it might work for him on the on the on the uh, superficial level. But you know it reminds me of you know Chris Carpenter came back from uh, from when, I forget exactly for surgery or was just hurting and uh, and he put up like a three ERA and and then you know people thought oh you know maybe he can he can you know contribute next year and then he was out most of this year and then there was a talk he was coming back. And he even went on rehab, and then it didn't work out. Uh, you know, I, I think that if Halliday comes back and shows like a three ERA, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the stuff was terrible and it was uh, n- not a three ERA that he'd earned. So um, I'm 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 skeptical. I'm really skeptical. Well, I'm pretty sure the answer to your question about Chris Carpenter is that he had every surgery because he's injured every part of his body. But didn't early in his career didn't he have Tommy John surgery and then with the Cardinals he had shoulder problems he had like didn't he have that thoracic chest issue or something? Oh, I wonder if he had that thoracic or, outlet. It, yeah, he had like nerve yeah. issues and neck problems. He basically, I feel like, has had every single body part hurting him at some point throughout his career. Yeah, I think he's actually one of the uh, quote unquote success stories for. Um, 
I think he had that slap surgery, the labrum tear surgery. And, uh, you know, the list of people who had that surgery and performed well afterwards is very short. You know, Annabelle Sanchez is way out in front. Uh, and Chris Carpenter, I guess, counts too. I'm not sure if he had slap in particular, but I think he did. So that's, uh, that's the beginning and ending of your list, really. And um, I think that's what Roy just had. So, you know, if Roy Halladay at his age is going to join the list, and, you know, Animal Sanchez had it when he was, you know, like 23. Um, Pineda, I think, just had it. So it's, um, it's, you know, it's the kind of surgery, all surgeries you want to have when you're young, if you're going to have to have them. And, um, you know, Roy Halladay is, is anything but young. Yeah, this is serious, serious surgery. This is not like a minor procedure. Again, this is surgery that you wonder if they're ever going to be the same pitcher as they had been. And this is usually a guy we're talking about, like a Michael Pineda, who's in his mid-20s. This is Roy Halladay, who's now 36 years old. So I cannot imagine him having any value whatsoever. I really would like to hear what his velocity is at. I haven't found that, but I can't imagine he's throwing 90. And so if he is back in the mid to high 80s, I mean, he's just going to be useless, I think. So I know it's kind of intriguing to find him maybe on free agency and think, oh, he'll give me a big boost to my free uh, my pitching staff the rest of the way. But I think you got to pass on him because I, I think he's going to be worthless and hurt your ratios. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I guess everything's different in a deep league. I, I hate to put that asterisk on everything. It's always, you know, in a deep league where you're starting, uh, uh, well, I don't know, uh, Henderson Alvarez. If you're starting Henderson Alvarez, then you should consider Roy Halladay for your Mike DL. Mike Pelfrey. Huh? Mike Pelfrey. Mike Pelfrey. Wow, that's even worse. Exactly. Yeah, because I think Henderson Alvarez has actually pitched pretty well so far. But right, I, it's true. He, he no, does have that 95-mile-an-hour gas. Yeah, there's, there's no argument whatsoever that Mike Pelfrey could possibly help your team. So I think he's safer. All right, let's move along to the Astros' bullpen because I'm, I'm totally tired of talking about them. So please tell me that Cha Jen Lo is the answer and he will hold on to this role the rest of the year and we never have to talk about this bullpen again. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think the answer is he's he's the closer, and we don't have to talk about it because he might not be the closer tomorrow. I mean, they're really trying everybody out. Josh Fields got the last save, uh, but it was in one of those extra innings situations. Um, so I don't uh, I don't know that we know exactly who's there. And I don't actually think that the Astros care. You know, yeah. I looked at their I looked at this is really interesting. I looked at their outfield. They've tried nine outfielders. They're, by the end of the season, they're going to have nine outfielders with a hundred plate appearances. And uh, one thing that's really interesting about 100 plate appearances is that's when contact rate stabilizes. <clears throat> so I think it's totally possible that they've treated this year as auditioning for everybody. And uh, they're going to audition nine outfielders, and they're going to audition four relievers, and maybe one of them steps to the four. Granted, of them, Chia Jin Lo actually is the most interesting in terms of stats, gas, arsenal. I mean, he is a fastball slider guy, but I looked at his minor league stats and he never really showed too bad of a split. He has great control, and I think, you know, that's one of those things that can actually help you um, uh, 
avoid the platoon split problem, you know, because when you look at Masterson, the only reason that Masterson is good in his good years is those are the years he has great control, and he doesn't have great control every year. So when he has great control, he's putting the slider exactly where he needs to put it for it to work, um, and it's, you know, it is possible to throw a slider to a left-hander and not have him hit it. I mean, it's possible. It's just, you know, when you zoom out, it doesn't happen all the time. Um, so basically... Uh, what I'm saying is that Chiajin Lo has good control, and the only real negative, you know, we look at his stats in his line is that he's been hurt a lot. So, you know, that probably means don't bet on him in a dynasty. Um, and what I was saying about auditioning is don't bet on him this year, but, you know, he could be the closer next year. I'll, I'll draft him for my final closer next year if he gets a couple saves this year. Yeah, the thing is, is he's 27 years old, so he's no, like, young prospect. And, it sounds like you're more familiar with him than I am because I, before he was called up, I had no idea who this guy was. And I'm looking, he only has about 17 innings pitched in the minors this year. Was he injured for most of the season? Yeah, yeah, and he was injured last year, and he's, he's, health is the big problem for him. He's just, he just can't stay healthy. Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue I have right now is he's an extreme fly ball pitcher. Right now, uh, a 53% fly ball rate, and that's not good pitching in a park that doesn't inflate home runs so I don't know I mean his track record in the minors is pretty minuscule so it's really difficult to get an idea of what you could expect but you know the fastball is good he throws 94 and he pairs that with a curveball I think it's a slider but yeah I think it's a slider but you know I looked at it uh when I you're right the 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 track record was tiny when I looked at his splits when I was talking about not being so bad against left-handers I think the sample size was 77 batters faced so and that's like all of the minor leagues. So that he's so I don't think I don't think I can say definitively he doesn't have platoon splits, but you know, uh, there's something there. It, Josh Fields like can't find his own dude. That guy, and he came on last night against Oakland, and I thought, you know, he, Chris Young had two straight nights, almost had a walk off homer, and you know Robbie Grossman robbed Chris Young of a home run off of Josh Fields. So I don't really think that Josh Fields is the answer. Yeah, I mean, the problem is is that they just don't have any obvious alternative, and, and the guys that may have gotten a shot are gone. Wesley Wright was traded, uh, Jose Cisnero was sent down, so it's just a whole bunch of slop, and, and they're just throwing everything against the wall, see what sticks, and I don't know, I don't really have any confidence in, in low, long term, but at the moment, as in today, it seems like he is closing, but I don't know how long that would last, but I, I don't think anybody's really going to provide any value for the rest of the year. Maybe a couple of saves here and there, but not going to offer much ratio help or strikeouts. Yeah, I think it was much more likely you because there are auditioning starters too. If you noticed, um, I think it's much more likely that somebody who's starting this year uh, moves to the bullpen because they decide. You know, it's already happened with Lucas Harrell, for example. I don't, I haven't looked at Lucas Harrell's uh, stats as in the bullpen. I doubt they're any good, but. Um, they could be, you know. That's basically what the bullpen is full of, is failed starters. So, um, you know, one of these guys that's out there right now might be their closer next year. Yeah, I mean, Lucas Harrell could be a Jim Johnson, considering he's got the ground ball rate. And Jim Johnson did start his career as a starting pitcher, and then they moved him to the bullpen. So He just has to push that strikeout to walk rate north of one. <laughs> yeah, that's his only issue. It's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like he was probably – let me bring up Harold because I feel like his velocity is also down this year. And I think that maybe he's not 100% healthy. 
because yeah, it's good, uh, no, no, his velocity is, is fine actually. Uh, yeah, it's his. He just can't throw strikes this year, and uh, I mean that's an issue he struggled with in the past. So maybe he's not injured. Maybe he's just bad. That's that's <laughs> that, that, that's my idea. <laughs> but I mean, we don't we don't know what he looks like out of the bullpen. I mean, if if you tick that up to ninety four, you know, on the fastball, all of a sudden. You know, and then he drops his worst pitch, whatever it is, and he just becomes like a fastball curveball guy out of the bullpen. Everything could change. Yeah, and he's got the ground ball rate, so at least he's got one skill that's good that if you squint hard enough, I mean, you could see a potentially pretty useful bullpen arm if everything comes together. And he's he's not injured like I thought maybe he would be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move along to Prince Fielder, and, and here's another psychological question. So news came out that he filed for divorce from his wife of more than eight years on May 28th. And Tory Hunter said on a Detroit sports radio show earlier this week that a lot of people don't know what's going on in Fielder's life, which suggests that Fielder might be not really into it as much and, and distracted based on his personal life, and that could be affecting his performance. But that's so hard to know. Do you... Believe in that stuff that these off-field personal type issues could carry on to the field and really hurt a player's performance. Ooh, 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 ooh. story time, story time. I actually have a story that's relevant. Please uh, share. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to remove all of the names uh, in the story to protect the people involved. Um, but let's just say a uh, a well-known uh, starting pitcher from a team that we were just discussing. Um, was uh, was out uh, partying on the town, um, and uh, he was out, uh, and he managed to run into a uh, bachelorette party for a writer that I know that I will not name, and uh, and they were at this bachelorette party, and it was a, a couple of uh, oh, I can say what team they were on, a couple Astros hanging out with the with a bunch of girls, and um, and having a good time and drinking. That's Lucas Harrell's problem, is that he's just too much of a partier. Not current Astros, let me just say that. <laughs> Not current Astros. So uh, they, were, uh, they were actually at the bar, and one of the, the Astros um, pitchers kept telling my friend, uh, you know what you have to do is you have to remember to, to, to hydrate. You've got to drink water between every serving of alcohol. So, um, you know, she was drinking water all night, and he was drinking water all night between, uh, between generous uh, servings of alcohol. And, um, you know, she thought, oh, that's great. I met, you know, I met this star pitcher, you know, and uh, that was fun. And we had a fun bachelorette party. And uh, the next morning she's packing up and she's, she has a hangover, um, you know, <laughs> amazing. And, um, and she's packing and, you know, she's uh, a fan of another team. If I name the team, you might know who she is. <laughs> um, and she's a fan of another team. They're on TV. And she's like, oh, you know what? They're playing the Astros today. So she turns on the TV. And the first thing she hears when she turns on the TV is, wow, this pitcher is really struggling today. He looks pretty bad out there. He's all sweaty, and he just can't find the zone. And, you know, I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's just a hot day. And there was uh, the guy that she'd partied with all night uh, having a bad day. And his Babbitt was probably pretty bad. And, uh, you know, it, it, and we would probably chalk it up to say, oh, you know what, don't worry about that guy. He's going to be fine. It was just a bad start. But you know what? Sometimes just a bad start mean you know they were partying late last night or they were arguing with their wife late late last night or whatever so we look at these numbers and we say this is luck 
this will even out. And I think that's probably true even on a human level. Like, you know, even if we, even if it wasn't luck and it was actually that he was in a bad mood or things were not going well, you know, things would turn around for him eventually. And when he's happy again, you know, maybe he gets lucky again and the luck evens out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, so maybe that did have an effect on Prince Fielder, but, you know, we don't know when it would start having an effect and when it would end having an effect. So basically we have to ignore it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that it's all speculation and we don't know. And we, we don't know what kind of an effect, how much of an effect things have. We just, we tend to lump it into luck and we tend to just ignore it. Even even if we do admit, yeah, it might have an effect. We don't know. It's just not worth analyzing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to, uh, you know, go partying with, in every city or, or send out people to go partying in every city and go find who's, who's the drunkest, you know? Do you, uh, do, do you think that sometimes when a player is scratched from the lineup from so-called flu-like syndrome, syndromes, <laughs> symptoms, symptoms, that's really because he's hung over? Because I, I've read that speculation before. Well, I mean, what was it about David Wells? Didn't he uh, pitch drunk? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that he pitched, pitched pitched drunk sometimes, and he definitely pitched with hell of hangovers. I know that. And he said something about one of his standout games where he was super hungover or something. So um, yeah, I think I think that definitely happens. I mean, the, the I think the thing that there's a couple of the different things that happens with baseball players. Like for one, uh, even if they're not doing illegal stimulants, they're doing legal stimulants. They're you know you can see that they're drinking Red Bulls like you know they're nothing. I mean they. These guys, some of them drink three or four Red Bulls during the course of a game. Uh, they'll just, you know, hit the coffee, rock star. That stuff is everywhere um, in baseball. And it's, it's not illegal, so I'm not, I'm not talking out of turn. I mean, it's just what they do because they play a game where they have to be up and at them at 7 o'clock when most of us are starting to wind down. So, um, you know, it's just what we ask of them. And so what they do is they have to live a different lifestyle where they're up at 7 and that makes it hard because, you know, if you're up and at them at 7 p.m., then at 10 and 11, you're still sort of awake. Um, so you're not going to go to bed at a regular time. And a lot of times it also means you need to do something to unwind. So, you know, back in the 70s, it was very, very, uh, it was much worse where they took greenies. They were super amped for the game and they all had to go out drinking afterwards uh, to, to wind down because they were on amphetamines. I mean, it was you know, but there's a lesser version of that that still probably happens today, and, and and also they just live a different schedule. So they are their seven, our seven o'clock is their like eleven and twelve, you know, midnight. So and they have money, you know, and a lot of them are single. So they, you know, it makes sense for them to spend a couple hours out in the town. I mean, Matt Harvey recently said that he likes to go drinking in the Lower East yes. Side. I was just gonna bring up Matt Harvey because I read that article too, and it was interesting. It's great just hearing our players living like a regular person and you know a young 20 year old like matt harvey should be i mean i i just think that's cool that they could lead normal lives when they're not actually playing yeah i mean actually i think baseball players are lucky in that regard the, the hat and um probably baseball status as you know second or third um most favorite sport uh helps them be a little bit more anonymous when they want to be i mean you saw that skit with matt harvey that was fantastic asking people about Matt Harvey. So, uh, and those were baseball, baseball fans. I mean, you know, one thing that's hard for me when I go into the clubhouse is I don't re immediately recognize faces, you know. I mean, you know, baseball players aren't marketed uh, in the same way as other, other sports. So, 
there are young guys with a lot of money that don't necessarily always get, um, you know, uh, you know, especially in a te- in a city like New York where there's so many different interests. You could hang out with a bunch of he, you know, they said Harvey hangs out with a bunch of bankers. They might not all, they might not know who Matt Harvey is even. Oh, sure they do. But <clears throat> you mentioned that David Wells's one of his best games came when. He was drunk. Do you think that the Bill James game score should be doubled when a pitcher is drunk? <laughs> he overcame obstacles. That's because that's really impressive. I know when I'm drunk, like, there's no way I can pitch a baseball game. I mean, I can't pitch a baseball game sober, but, like, drunk, I think that's insane to do that well, at least. And Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah, there should be there should be definitely a, a drunk game score. <laughs> like, drunk uh, history. Let's bring it back to Prince Fielder, because he is having a down year. A 3.43 Woba is his worst mark ever in his entire career. His ISO, also the lowest of his career at 168, lowest home run per fly ball. I mean, it stopped me because it just goes on and on. He's clearly having the worst year of his career. And um, is, is this just, you know, a standard slightly disappointed in the year that anybody could endure or is this something more i mean he's 29 right now is it's not an age where you think suddenly it's the beginning of a decline so i mean what is this uh you know um it's it's hard to tell i mean what do you think oh i mean i looked at his batted ball distance last year he was at 296 feet this year 293 that's a very minimal difference. And 293 is still well above the league average. So yeah, I saw, me, I saw that too. I mean, that doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem like a big deal. No, to me, that basically suggests that it's just a, bunch, a, a couple of gusts of wind that are, are missing from those long fly balls, and, and they just don't seem to be going out. Maybe he's not pulling the ball as much as he normally has in the past, but it seems like his power hasn't disappeared as much as it would seem by just looking at his isolated slugging or his home run per fly ball rate, which means that if you're an owner, then be patient. I mean, there's only a month and a half left, of course, but he looks like this might just be a one-year blip, and next year he'll be a bit undervalued, and the power is going to return and be back to how it always was. Because it- yeah, he 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 hasn't uh, his batting angle hasn't changed. I've got that open. Um, you know, I basically the uh, the max. Uh, some of the max homer. Well, the max homers are there too, actually, compared to last year. He's just missing. He's missing some stuff. And I really think, you know, let's say he has a three homer game. That would, you know, that wouldn't be crazy. He's done that. That he's done that before. Now he's at twenty homers. You know, and you're asking him to hit like eight more homers over the course of the season. That would be his career low, but it would be a number he's hit before. He's hit twenty eight homers before. So I just find that, you know, in my experience, Prince Fielder is very um, sort of season to season. I don't want to say he has good seasons and bad seasons because that's that's stupid. Like he doesn't alternate them. But if you just look at his career, he has seasons where he's hit 34 homers. He has seasons where he's hit 261, 32 homers. He only hit 30 homers last year, you know. But that was sort of helped by he had a good average last year. So basically, if you just put together his worst seasons, the different parts of his worst seasons, you get 261 with 28 homers. Do I think he can do that this year? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's 11 more homers, but, you know, it's it's a year for homers in terms of weather. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think he's going to be far off of, you know, you know, just the different parts of Prince Fielder, just the worst ones. 
He's been really inconsistent in terms of his home run totals every year. I mean, from his rookie season, he goes 28, 50, 34, 46, 32. So he's been the epitome of a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. So he's been extremely inconsistent. So I, I don't know what's behind that. but It just, you know, and that, and that made it hard for me to ever spend a first-round pick on him. I've never spent a first-round pick on him. Um, and I've never really thought of him as first-round talent, except for probably after that 50 home run season. Um, but if you bought him after that 50 home run season, you got 276 to 34 the next year, and you were probably pretty upset. So, I, I mean, I think he's one of those ideal, like, second- and third-round guys um, that, you know, next year he could, he could easily next year hit 290 with 40 home runs. I mean, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be out of place in his career at all. Yeah, that upside is always there, but obviously it's smart to just pay for the consistent 30 to the 35 home run guy, and then you won't be upset. But I think the most important thing to talk about is actually his strikeout rate, because last year was the best mark of his career, and the year before that was also improved. So he was on a two-year run of improved strikeouts, but then it's dropped back down this year to where he had been before 2011. And if you look back at his swinging strike percentage, he's swinging and missing more often in the last two years, but it's in line with pre-2011, same as his contact percentage. So this year is making it look like his last two years, for whatever reason, it was a fluke. He was making more contact than normal, and now he's back to the Prince Fielder he was previously, which suggests he's not a 300 hitter. He's more of a 270 guy, 275 guy, and, and that's what he is. So I think we now have a better idea of his batting average moving forward, but the power, it seems like, is still going to gyrate up and down. Yeah, I mean that's 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 Prince Fielder, and and you know, honestly, to make a big deal out of this uh, divorce thing ignores the fact that he's had tumultuous things going on his whole life. I mean, he had the well-publicized you know problems with his father, and you know he's had issues his whole life. So I mean, yeah, this here's this one. Maybe that has something to do with his oscillating years. But are you going to get in his pants and figure him out? Yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to get in Prince Fielder's pants. <laughs> We could both get in Prince Fielder's pants. <laughs> if you ever are in their clubhouse, that's what you're going to do. You're going to go over to Prince and be like, hi, Prince Amino, I'd like to get in your pants. Is that okay with you? Yeah, can I can I fit my whole body in one of your legs? Yeah, you probably will not get an interview after that. <laughs> All right, we have time for one last player. So I'm going to give you a choice. Who do you want to talk about, Todd Redmond or Kyle Loesch in the article that you wrote about him? Well, I actually don't know what's going on with uh, with either of them. You know? uh, Todd Redman, I, I did pick him up in AL Labor just because anytime a guy starts striking out guys, uh, you know, you've got my attention, and he, he, you know, he's got all the right things going for him. I do think he's going to be he's going to have serious homeritis. I think that's going to continue, and any guy that gives up, you know, over a, a homer and a quarter is going to um, is going to have you know, close to a four ERA. So uh, I, I, I think that he's not that useful. But I, I actually kind of believe that Kyle Loesch can keep it going uh, just because what he said to me in this interview was, uh, you know, if I get strike one, uh, I have four pitches. If I don't get strike one, I'm paraphrasing. If I don't get strike one, then I have two pitches uh, because he has a, he's a sinker changeup guy. Those are his best pitches. But he has a curve and a slider. And if if he gets strike one, then he can use those all four of those pitches in different places and and get people out in different ways. But 
Um, if he doesn't get strike one, then he has to kind of go back to his, he gets more predictable is how he put it. So um, I, he's an elite strike one guy. I think over the last three years, he's third in the league. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I think that just staying out of bad counts means that I don't think that I would start Kyle Loesch like tonight necessarily in Milwaukee against the Reds. But um, I would start him in most of his starts on the road and uh, some of his starts at home. Yeah, I mean, that is clearly the biggest difference between the Cardinals' Kyle Loesch and the Twins' version of Loesch is that he throws a lot more first-pitch strikes and he's walking uh, a lot fewer batters. But most of what I see is that he's just benefiting from a low BABIP, a high strand rate. And, I mean, unless there's some sort of explanation where there's a, a relationship between throwing more first-pitch strikes and, and issuing fewer walks and also having a lower BABIP, it seems like the majority of his, his success is luck. Do you disagree? Yes. I mean, it's just if you look at his, if you look at his stats, the last three years are when he – because he, he says he was hurt in 2009, 2010, and he thinks those stats shouldn't count, <laughs> which uh, we can laugh at, but that's, that's fine. He, he meant it as a laugh. But uh, if you if you look right after 2010, 2011 is when he started 67, you know, 68 percent first strike, 69 percent last year, 67 this year. Those are those are really great numbers. And if you look at his BABIPs those years, 269, 262, 270. And I don't think that it's that weird. I mean, I haven't seen a study that that proves it or anything, but I don't think it's that weird to say that if you start in a in a one in an o in a o one count. Um, that you that your BABIP like basically all that we need to do and hey I found a I found a post idea uh, is find out what the BABIP is after the count goes 01 right because if the BABIP is after 01 counts is like 250 and he gets into 01 counts 70 percent of the time we figured something out but you know what's funny is that it seems like we always get the guys like a Dan Howard or a Ricky Nolasco where they get criticized for throwing too many strikes so it's like whoever whatever pitcher you're analyzing then there's always some way that you find a way to justify their performance even if it's completely opposite of another pitcher so for Loesch oh it's good that he's throwing first pitch strikes it lowers his Babbitt but if we're talking about Nolasco it's bad that he's throwing strikes and that hurts his Babbitt you can't have it both ways it's got to be one or the other and the weird thing about Loesch is his batted ball profile, he gives up more line drives than the league average. He does not induce more pop-ups than the league average. He, yeah, he allows a, a couple more fly balls than the league average, which have a lower BABIP. He does not induce more outside swings or uh, – he, he gets a little more outside contact than normal. And I don't know if the studies have shown that BABIP is lower on outside contact. But, I mean, there's like nothing that I can point to that can possibly explain – the continued low BABIP, and that's why he's been so weird all these years. Yeah, which you know, I mean, he doesn't throw he doesn't throw more strikes than than people. I mean, he he throws right at the league average his own percentage. So um, it's not that he's throwing a ton of strikes; it's just that he's throwing a ton of first strikes. So I mean, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into this. I mean, if the BABIP after a one count is real low, and somebody's elite at getting uh, uh, Intel one counts. I feel like that's a pretty solid argument for for saying first strike rate should factor into your ERA estimator on some level. Yeah, and then maybe we can go back to Steve Stodd, our math ninja, 
because he he had come up with a, a BABIP formula that incorporated infield fly ball percentage and uh, a, a bunch of other metrics. I don't think first pitch strike percentage was part of that. So I wonder if trying to incorporate that into a, a predicted BABIP allowed for pitchers might help. I got the baby and the baby's crying. I got to go. Oh. See you later. All right. Well, thanks for joining us as always on The Sleeper and the Bust. So for Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.